You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Buying furniture is not easy. You want well-designed pieces that fit into a modern lifestyle, yet the look should be timeless. And you want a custom experience creating furniture designed specifically for your space. My suggestion is that you check out Cozy, a North American company that thoughtfully designs furniture for modern living. Their high-quality products are delivered quickly and are easy to assemble. Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space, or go directly to their website at Cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. You know, I like classic clothing that never goes out of style, and that's why I suggest you check out Quince, an online clothing store that focuses on timeless essentials at great prices. I recently bought a Mongolian cashmere sweater for under $100. It's a great sweater and a great deal. Now that warm weather is upon us, Quince has all the seasonal must-haves, like 100% European linen shirts from 30 bucks, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands by partnering directly with top factories. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash milkstreet for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's q-u-i-n-c-e dot com slash milkstreet 
to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash Milk Street. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. A few anchovies, butter, dried parsley, or maybe that was fresh thyme. For decades, chefs have been trying to discover the recipe for France's most famous steak sauce. Today we meet Aline and Pauline Godiot, the family behind this secret sauce. We've heard so many stupid things about what's in the sauce that I'm not afraid. The only person who had the recipe was my mother and his brother and his sister, and they kept it secret. Also coming up, Alex Inews tells us why he thinks we should forget homemade sourdough and bake white bread instead. And later we make my new favorite snack, Mexican sweet corn cake. But first we hear from Lokalani Alabanza about her Southern-inspired ice cream flavors. Lokalani, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, thank you for having me. Uh, you've had a really interesting background. Uh, New England Culinary Institute, I know that well in Vermont. Worked in L.A., a pastry chef. Worked with Nancy Silverton. Opened a hand pie company and then at a creamery in Nashville. Uh, you love ice cream. You've created, you say, 300 flavors in the past four years. Let's start with the ice cream itself. Do you have some strong feelings about a base for ice cream that makes the best ice cream, or do you think all ice creams are created equal? Uh, that No one's ever asked me that, so this is really great. I, They're not created equal because you have American hard style, which has no eggs. You have custard, which has a percentage of egg yolk, and you have gelato, and you have ice cream base. So I took the ice cream base route, which is just a standard milk, cream, egg yolk, sugar mixture. And that was sort of the base that I had learned at Campanile and at Grace Restaurant. And so I just took that and morphed it into what I thought worked out. But I had to learn a lot about how sugar and fat play while they're frozen. So that's been, I think, the hardest part about it is figuring out the ratio. So I have to ask at the outset, you know, you've married two things that normally don't go together, right? Ice cream and history, in this case, African-American history. How did you decide to put those two things together? And why did that make sense to you? So my journey with ice cream has been very interesting because I didn't grow up eating a lot of it. You know, when I did have it, it was very, it was Neapolitan flavor. And then all of a sudden, I found the Jemima Code, which is by Tony Tipton Martin. It's a beautiful book about 200 years of African-American cookbooks. And I heard about it on my drive from Las Vegas to Nashville. And it blew my mind that I didn't know about these books in culinary school or actually at any time in my culinary career. So the more I dug into Southern food and the culture and just, I mean, I grew up in the black culture. It just made more sense to me, to incorporate these flavors. So now you have the recipes, uh, African-American recipes going way back. How do you take those recipes and apply them to ice cream and actually design those flavors? Uh, it starts by finding something or just being inspired by something. And then I think 
how do we take this and make it a flavor that will spark some sort of nostalgic moment for someone? And so sweet potato pie for me was something I grew up eating and then knowing, okay, you can't just dump a potato into ice cream, right? You have to break it down and think, well, if I make the pie filling, I'll bake the pie filling, and then I have to Vitamix it down to a puree so that I can incorporate that into the ice cream so it's silky smooth. And then, of course, it needs marshmallow, and then it needs pecans. And so it's like a game, kind of. It's like, how do you take this and put it into ice cream and savor these little bits of something that you would have had as a child or your grandmother would have cooked for you? Uh, peanuts and Coke. Um, <laughs> tell, tell that story, because that's not something I knew anything about. I had zero idea about it either, and I was going through, I'll just randomly Google something, or I'll be going through old magazines, and it came up, and I went, oh my gosh, what is this? Because Coca-Cola out of the bottle is delicious, and I love, you know, peanuts, so I was like, oh, this is amazing. And so getting the flavor of Coke incorporated into ice cream is not very easy because people know the carbonation and the sugar content and that vanilla. It's very specific. And so that took a while to just kind of, it was a flat Coke almost, but it had that flavor. And then I had to make something peanut-like into it. So I made it, is it called orge? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, the almond flavor, yeah. Yeah, so I replaced the almonds with peanuts and made that syrup and then added it to the ice cream and then it had this flavor. And so when we put it out, a lot of people came in and they said, I love that. My parents ate that. My grandpa had that. He would drink the neck out of, you know, they would drink the neck of the Coke and then fill it up with peanuts. And so I couldn't believe that was an actual thing, but it's it's a Southern thing. Some of the flavors I want to talk about, uh, years ago, I was at Prince's Hot Chicken Shack. Oh, uh, yeah. And I did not order the hottest. Um, <laughs> but how do you turn hot chicken, Nashville's hot chicken, into ice cream? So that took an entire year. So I... When I think I had hot chicken maybe two years before we fully moved to the South. And I remember having it and I thought, what is this mm. amazing thing? Because I can take heat, but I mean, the heat that they do is <laughs> a little bit much. So I did some research and I was blown away just by the story, you know, of Prince's hot chicken and how it came to fruition. And so I thought, well, ice cream. That makes sense. So no, no, wait, wait a minute. No, it doesn't. It, I mean, yeah. it doesn't make any sense at all. It's like I mean, I'm glad you did it, but how did you think about putting hot chicken and ice cream? Because it was cooling and hot at the same time. Or? Well, yeah, it, I really fell in love with it. I, I and I thought there's got to be a way to incorporate this spice, this heat into it, right? And so I talked to a really close friend of mine, and he said why don't you use chicken skin? And I went, yeah, it's brilliant. So the recipe I have, we deep fry the chicken skin. We toss it in this beautiful, bright, orangish red paste. And then I let that steep overnight. And then that's Mm. what did it. And that's what pulled the flavor. And then another friend said, why don't you just candy the chicken skin after you fry it? And I said, that's great too. (laughs) So we would fry another round do the same steps and then candy it and then cut that up into small bits. And then we folded it into the ice cream. It was, I think the reactions alone were worth everything. 
So there was another one that, that seemed the simplest of them all, a Parmesan flavor. Why, why Parmesan? So the Parmesan is this beautiful dedication to Sarah Estelle, who was this free black female entrepreneur in 1840 in Nashville, Tennessee, who had an ice cream saloon. And she was open from 1840 to 1860. And after the Civil War hit, the paper trail is gone. There's no, we don't know what happened to her. We know that the uh, saloon was closed up and that was it. So the Nashville Historical Society, they had a dinner and they asked us to uh, make a flavor for Sarah Estelle. And I was just amazed that here I am making ice cream in Nashville. She was here. And so I did some research and it came up that Parmesan and rye bread were really popular flavors during that time. Mm. And so I thought, well, why not make this Parmesan flavor? And I did. And I added a little black pepper to it. And it was wild. So so in the 1840s and 50s, she was selling an ice cream flavored with Parmesan? Yes, she was. And she huh. was known as the queen of ice cream back in the time. People, there were rave reviews. There are actual articles written about her ice cream. You know, everyone thinks that history sort of goes forward, but sometimes it really goes backwards, right? I mean, yes. Here's yeah, somebody it, 150 years ago doing Parmesan ice cream. Yeah, for me, she's been a huge inspiration. And there's a plaque with her name on it in downtown Nashville where her ice cream saloon used to be. But hmm. it's just a very simple flavor with the most beautiful historical context. Look, Elani, thank you so much uh, for being on Milk Street. You've made me rethink what a good ice cream is. Thank you. Thank you. This has been so wonderful. That was ice cream maker, Lokalani Alabanza, founder of Saturated Ice Cream in Nashville, Tennessee. It's time to take some of your calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of Home Cooking 101. Sarah, how are you? I'm great, Chris, and I think it's time to get to the phones. Open up the lines. Let's go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Brendan. Hi, Brendan. Where are you calling from? Fresno, California. How can we help you today? Well, I have a question about making a strawberry cake. I've made it multiple times, and the first few times that I've made it, it was delicious, but the cake texture came out really dense. And I was uh, actually out of town um, at my mom's house, and I was making it again, and she only had a stand mixer that had, instead of a paddle attachment, all it had was whisk attachment. And when I used that attachment, I don't know if it was that or what happened, but the cake came out perfect. It was really nice and light and fluffy. So I'm just wondering, could that have done something different, or was there something else going on maybe that made it light and fluffy? What's the recipe? Are you beating whole eggs with sugar to start, or what are you doing? Yeah. Well, I think that's the answer right that's there. That's the answer. What did you used to use before you used a whisk? Just a spoon? A paddle or? attachment. A paddle. Oh, a paddle attachment, yeah. No, it's absolutely yeah. the whisk. Right. The whisk will incorporate more air, and this cake depends in part on incorporating air into the whole eggs and the sugar to get a nice, light texture to yeah. them. The paddle is good for batters that don't really depend on incorporating a lot of air. Right. 
I so, mean, especially when you have a high percentage of eggs, that's sort of part of their role there is to add leavening, you know, they just naturally without a leavener. I imagine there's a leavener in the recipe too. Yeah, baking uh, powder. Yeah. You ended yep. up using the right tool for the job. Right. <laughs> the recipe called the for a paddle? That's silly. Yeah, the recipe calls for a paddle, you know, and that, I don't know. You know, one other thing I was thinking was because it says to uh, microwave the strawberries and then strain them and then reduce them into a syrup and down to, I think, a quarter cup or whatever. And I was wondering maybe in the past, if I didn't reduce the liquid enough and it was too much liquid, could that have something to do with it? Or no? Or no? Is it just the... Not really. I don't think it'd make that much of a difference. I, I mean, think. if you had a cup of liquid versus a quarter, that might make a difference. Yes. But it sounds like you're talking about a tablespoon or two, right? Difference. Yeah, a couple yeah. tablespoons. No, yeah. that wouldn't it's, matter. It's, right? it's the whisk. It's the whisk. The question is, do you have a stand mixer with a whisk attachment? Oh, yeah, I definitely yeah. do. It. Oh, good. Well, I'll be using the whisk from now on. You should yeah. be. Yay. Thanks. That was an easy one. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm glad you could help me. Sure. Pleasure. Thanks, right. Brendan. Thanks for calling. Yeah, thank you very much. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Erica. Hi, Erica. Where are you calling from? Bucks County, Pennsylvania. How can we help you? I had a question about a root vegetable gratin that I made. It was one of the gratins where several different root vegetables were arranged very pretty in concentric circles, and it looked really beautiful, but the milk and the cheese and the butter, when I served it, separated. So it was kind of watery with the milk solids floating around in there. A problem we have experienced many times. Um, a few questions. Are you using russets for potatoes? She said just root vegetables. Oh. Were there potatoes in there? Good question. So I did include two russets, hoping that the starch might help. Right. It was butternut squash, russet, a sweet potato, and some of the larger size parsnips. And what kind of dairy did you have in it? I had whole milk, heavy cream, and butter that I simmered on a saucepan just to bring it up. So and it wasn't cold it, what was it. the proportion of milk to heavy cream? Three cups whole milk and one cup heavy cream. Was there cheese in it? Cheese on top, some and gruyere and pecorino. I would get rid of the milk or use okay. much less milk. The lower the fat of the dairy in a gratin dish, the more likely you'll have separation. Okay. The other way to do it is use a chicken or beef stock or vegetable stock with some heavy cream. That would also probably help. Okay. For cheese, um, you know, pecorino's an aged cheese and is not going to melt particularly well. So the fresher okay. the cheese, the better it melts. Uh, but I would think that it's really a question of the milk. There's three parts milk to one part heavy cream, and that maybe reverse it one part milk to three parts heavy cream or half and half. But the other thing is, since you've got a preponderance of root vegetables that are low in starch, including sweet potatoes, they don't have the mm -hmm. same kind of starch, that was the other issue there too. You know, because they give off liquid. Mm. Think about it. So I'm not saying you should get rid of the root vegetables. I agree with Chris. I would up the cream and down the milk or do half cream, half, say, chicken broth, vegetable broth. Yeah. You know, if you want to use milk, fine, but you would, should almost make a bechamel, like thicken it. Because if you... That was going to be my follow-up. Yeah. yeah, you could do that. If you want to use milk, make it, turn it into a cream sauce. I'd do a velouté. Okay. I, I would do butter, flour, and then add chicken stock. And use that as the base. That would be great. The difference between a velouté and a bechamel or a cream sauce is stock versus milk. So whatever you're looking for there. I was looking for the indulgent variety. So maybe I'd oh, go with the just, bechamel. Well, get the milk out yeah, of there, man. Lose the milk. <laughs>
Come on. <laughs> Lose the milk. Lose that milk. <laughs> yeah. That would be the opposite to the advertising, which is got milk. Lose the milk. <laughs> Lose the milk. Got Lose cream. Milk. Yeah, yeah, got cream. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Got cream. I think we've, we've got you all yeah. set. I think you're good to go. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All Thank right. you. Thanks, Erica. Thank you. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a ring at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's on the line? Hi, it's Kathy in Southwest Florida. Hi, Kathy in Southwest Florida. How can we help you today? Well, I talked to you a couple of weeks ago or so about my problem with blueberry smoothies. Ah, yes. Let's just refresh the issue was that when you make blueberry smoothies, they just seem to be so thick. They absolutely gel. 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 Yeah. So you're trying to figure out what to do. And so you went back to the drawing board, and what happened? Well, I tried Chris's suggestion, which was to just not care. But that did not go over with my family one bit. Well, okay. So. That, that was, but I had another suggestion, which was use a higher proportion of other fruit to blueberries. I think I also... Yes, that. Uh, that I did not try. But what I did try was I let it set in the blender until it was getting thick. And then I just whirled it again. Yeah. And it broke it up, and it did not re-gel. Okay, that was my suggestion. Was I win. Okay. One for me. Oh, well, so, okay, so not caring wasn't the most brilliant No, culinary. that really doesn't sound like you either. <laughs> it um, sounds just like well, me. So, so letting, it, letting it gel and then whizzing it all over again did the trick. Exactly. Wonderful. Instead of, like, breaking a cornstarch yeah. gel. Yeah. Yeah. How did you figure that out? I don't know. Well, and there you go. That's you one, made our day. one for you, And Sarah. I feel, I feel yeah, you, you made me look good over here. And I, I, I've got to try to care more. <laughs> okay, thank you, guys. Thanks. Thank Bye. you. Bye. That's a that's a good one. Yeah, good for we, you. Yeah, I guess in cooking, very often when things thicken, we know if you disturb them too much, of they unthicken. So yes. I guess that's a logical thing. Yeah. But I didn't think of it. Well, it's like my father-in-law's theory was: if force doesn't work, apply more force. Yeah, well, that's, there well, that's like fixing cars. Yeah. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. Up next, we're chatting with journalist Rebecca Rosman about France's top secret recipe for steak sauce. We'll be right back. I'm Christopher Kimball, and now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company, who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street. Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. <laughs> There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White, and here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do. My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh greens with blood orange and shaved fennel. My favorite would probably have to be 
like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite. The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house and a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection. My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an allagash white. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about mussels with beer, especially the white, that is just so good. I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with like spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile. I could imagine like something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing Allagash White with carrot cake is a thing of beauty. This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza. <laughs> I feel like after a long week having like a nice warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just like you made it. Like you did your week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer. It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White. <laughs> Yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of Allagash White to it. A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. <laughs> and I think because of that, Allagash White is kind of subtle in a way that not all beers are, and I think that makes it very food-friendly. I think it tends to unlock qualities in the food that you otherwise wouldn't necessarily notice. Like it's not too hoppy or it's not too sweet, so it sits right in the middle and sort of brings the flavors of the dish to life. If you ask anyone here at Allagash, we're pretty much all stands for this beer. We love it so much because every time you have it, you pick up something new. Every time you come back to it, you're reminded like, oh, wow, yeah, that's really good. This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allagash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com slash locator to find Allagash White near you. For 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine. This is Most Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's my interview with journalist Rebecca Rosman about the world's most sought-after secret steak sauce recipe. Rebecca, welcome to Milk Street. Hi, thanks for having me. Uh, we're talking about steak frites and a very particular place in Paris that serves that with a special sauce. So maybe you could start with the origin story. So the restaurant is called Relais de Venise de l'Entrecote, and it's run by a family, the Jeunesse de Sorles family. The original owner was a man named Paul Jeunesse de Sorles. Today it's run by his daughter, Hélène Godillo, and granddaughter, Pauline Godillo. And I had the opportunity to sit down with Hélène and Pauline at their restaurant, and they told me about the origins. Here's what Hélène said. 
Mon père avait un vignoble. My father was a wine grower and he dreamt of owning a restaurant and he said to my mother that yeah he, he wanted to do it and her reply was but how can you possibly want to have a restaurant you don't even know how to season a salad. But while he was in Switzerland he he sold a lot of wine there and he went to a you know just a small restaurant and they had this amazing steak and it had a sauce like no other that he had ever tasted before. So he asked the chef if he could have the recipe and the chef kindly gave it to him. So he made some modifications. He went back to France, did some test runs with his family, got to what they thought was a really nice sauce and decided that that is what they're going to open a restaurant with. Um, and they were just going to serve. It was kind of a, you know, a new concept. They just wanted to serve one menu item, which would be sirloin steak, l'entrecote, is what you say in French, with fresh fries, a nice salad, and the sauce. So he found a spot in the 17th arrondissement in Paris. Bon. He was a local of the restaurant um, opposite the Relais de Venise, and he went to see the owner and told him, oh, I've bought the uh, place opposite you. And the owner told him, oh, God, you poor thing, everybody fails. That restaurant never works. What are you going to serve? And his reply was, well, entrecotes and fries. And the uh, restaurant owner opposite told him people weren't going to go out to eat just for that. But we opened in January 1959. So we've been going strong for 61 years. The first month was hard, but now it's taken off. And the only thing we changed was the paint. So this was the first time someone had really opened a steak frite place, an inexpensive, very limited menu restaurant? Of that concept, yeah, it was the really the first one. So over time, uh, this sauce has actually been the subject of a lawsuit. Uh, there are other people out there with a similar restaurant formula. The biggest competitor, Marc, owns Bistro Rigeon. Uh Maybe you could talk about that place and uh, his relationship to the original restaurant. So Mark Van Hove used to be a cook. And 35 years ago, a friend of his who worked in the original Relais de Venise restaurant managed to get a hold of the recipe and gave it to Mark Van Hove. I had the recipe, but I only had the ingredients, not the weight of each of the ingredients. So at first I started at home in secret and not in restaurants away from prying eyes. And it took me about 50 tries to get the right uh, quantities for each of the ingredients and then the order of adding them into the mixture as well. So knowing how precious this gift was, he held on to it for years and years and years and waited until 2010 when he decided that he had enough savings to invest in his own small chain of restaurants at the time. Now it's much bigger, Bistro Région. And he had a slogan that said, essentially, if you like L'Entrecote, you'll love Bistro Région. <laughs> so that was sort of the base of the lawsuit, was whether L'Entrecote, he was referring to the restaurant or is he referring to the cut of meat? Right. So he, of course, claims that he was referring to the cut of meat. 
Alors, la, la famille de l'Entrecôte, euh, au début... So, at the very beginning, when I launched my restaurant chain, the Entrecôte family laughed, but then got angry when they saw that they'd made 20 million euros and I'd made 40 million, and that's when they sued. I won, except for a couple of small things, um, so I had to pay 80,000 euros um, because... One of our taglines was, if you like the Entrecôte, wait until you try the Bistro Région. Um, but I wasn't referring to the Entrecôte restaurant, I was referring to the Entrecôte dish, which is the most consumed dish in French restaurants. Qui est le morceau de viande le plus vendu dans la restauration française, c'est l'Entrecôte. L'Entrecôte, it's a very popular menu item in French restaurants. But there's a difference between Entrecôte and Le Entrecôte, meaning the entrecote and when you refer to le entrecote i would say anyone who's even a bit of a foodie knows you're talking about the original l'entrecote which is relay de venise so this brings up two issues the first is using the fame of an existing restaurant to launch your own chain and the other one is about whether you can copycat a recipe whether they're actually something that people own yeah and you know he he doesn't deny that he's kind of proud of it in a way you know, saying, I saw a business opportunity here and I, I took full advantage of it. You know, when, when my friend gave me this recipe, there was nothing nothing illegal about that. Yeah, but I think in the food world, the distinction is made, yes, there's no such thing as an original recipe, right? Everything's been invented probably. But if you do something that gives you economic gain based upon something somebody else has created, that becomes an economic issue. It's not just an issue of, of literary freedom. Right. He has 130 branches of his restaurant right now, <laughs> and he wants to expand. Meanwhile, Relais de Venise, you know, they have their original in Paris. They have another one in London and one in New York. But, you know, it's, it's really a small, small group. So why, why is it so, I mean, Okay, it's steak-free, right? It's a steak, fries, mm -hmm. some desserts, good wine, probably listed on the wall somewhere. Um, and it's got this, uh, this butter sauce. Um, it, it sounds lovely, but it sounds pretty simple. Well, it is simple food, but that sauce is not simple at all. People have tried to recreate it for decades. At one point, uh, Le Monde, which is one of the biggest, most popular newspapers in France, claimed that they had discovered the recipe and, you know, the secret was over, that's it. And it turned out they hadn't, uh, not even close, according to the owners. So you went, obviously, to the original Relais de Venice. So maybe we could just do a dive into what's in the sauce or what you've been told is in the sauce. Well, I had to bring in another quote-unquote expert to try and taste this sauce. So I took along my, my foodie friend, as I describe him, Francois. Well, I would say definitely butter. Uh, anchovies, salt, pepper. Uh, capers, I would, I would guess. Uh, herbs. Tarragon. Yeah, tarragon, yeah. Tarragon usually goes well with meat. So I'd be kind of cheating because I did read up about this. So what I read is that there's also chicken stock. Maybe chicken liver, onion, garlic, but I think the main things are the anchovy, the herbs, and possibly the chicken liver. So have the original family, Aline, Pauline, have they actually tried uh, the sauce from Bistro Région? 
So Pauline Gurio told me she took her cousin to his restaurant because she was just so curious and, you know, they had to try it. If you go and taste the sauce, I can tell you it's absolutely not the same at all. Just by the look of the sauce, I know it's not the same ingredients and the taste is not the same. No, he, he cannot have the recipe because the only person who had the recipe was my mother and his brother and his sister and they kept it secret. So there's all the secrecy around the secret steak sauce, uh, but I wonder whether Mark, does he keep his recipe under lock and key as well? Oh, yes, he definitely does. Uh, the secret sauce is kept in this, what he calls a lab in Bordeaux. Alors, le laboratoire fait, c'est assez grand parce qu'il nous So the lab is actually quite big. You have to have an access card to get there. And there are only two people who know the recipe other than myself. And those two people have signed an NDA. Of course, um, unfortunately, you can never be sure, but I tried to choose people that I could trust, and they are paid for it. We make five million euros in that lab um, because the sauce is gold. So they're all very tight-lipped, and if any of them were to ever steal the recipe, I imagine there would be quite a big lawsuit. <laughs> what comes around? <laughs> so after all these years, is the original family concerned about uh, their business, their sauce, or they think they're just doing a great job and have nothing to worry about? The Godio family are not concerned at all. At least that's what they, they told me when I spoke with them. See, I think it, it would be very complex to find out what's in the sauce. We've heard so many stupid things about what's in the sauce that I'm not afraid. And in, in addition, it's the sauce, but it's a lot of things around it that made the success of the uh, restaurant. It's the, the fact that you do find the same quality in your plate for um, the last 60 years. It's the atmosphere. It's everything that makes it a success still today. So at the end of the day, what's your takeaway in terms of knockoffs and the value of being true to your beliefs about what makes a good restaurant? I think if being an entrepreneur is your thing and you want to look to the restaurant industry, you know, Mark Van Hoff, I'm sure he's a great, great example to say, you know, he, he really took this kind of almost like a manufacturer style of opening so many restaurants and he's been quite successful at it. Um, that being said, to me, it's, it's, it's about the experience of going to the restaurant, seeing Hélène Gonio, who is now in her, I want to say late 80s, early 90s, and she still sits there at the lunch service every single day and watches from the side. Uh, Rebecca, thank you so much for being on Mill Street and telling us the story of uh, the original steak-free restaurant. Thank you. That was journalist Rebecca Rosman. The recipe for steak sauce may be a secret in Paris, but Coca-Cola has an older and more famous secret recipe. That formula was invented in 1886 by an Atlanta pharmacist, and it did include cocaine from a coca leaf extract, as well as cola nuts, hence the name Coca-Cola. It wasn't until 1929 when all traces of cocaine were finally removed. However, the New York Times reported in 1988 that Coca-Cola still contains coca leaf extracts provided by the Stepan Company, but with the cocaine removed. I searched the Stepan Company website, but I couldn't find a single mention of coca leaves, so maybe that's still a half-kept secret. The biggest secret of all, of course, would be that Coca-Cola still contains cocaine. 
And maybe that explains why they sell 1.8 billion bottles per day. It's time to head into the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with Reyna Javeri about this week's recipe, Mexican sweet corn cake. Reyna, how are you? I'm well, Chris. Hi. So this is a story about a trip I made recently to Mexico City, and it's a great example of when you travel, you come across a recipe that's totally unexpected, but is by far the favorite recipe from your trip. And I was at the Coyacan Market in Mexico City, and all these markets, of course, have restaurants. This one was actually a very beautiful restaurant, La Cocina de Mi Mama. Adriana Luna is the chef, the owner, has a huge bar and has this wonderful cooking area, very well provisioned. And while we were waiting for her to start our cooking lesson, we were brought a slice of a corn cake and a huge cup of coffee. And after my second slice of corn cake, because I liked it so much, I was just amazed. It has a texture between almost a sponge cake and cornbread. It's slightly savory, but it's slightly sweet. It's just an amazing recipe. So I got the recipe, we brought it back, and uh, I gave it to you. (laughs) And what did you do with it? Well, here's the thing, Chris. What we discovered is that the corn in Mexico is much starchier and less sweet than American corn. So at first we had some trouble replicating that texture that you just mentioned that you love so much. Because that starchier corn in Mexico gives the cake its light, airy texture. So to adapt the recipe, we found that we had to add cornmeal, cornstarch, and yogurt to the recipe to make it lighter and less dense. So what we do is we start by cutting about a cup and a half of corn, add it to the blender along with cornmeal condensed milk, which is the only sweetness, which is why I like this recipe too, and yogurt. And then after blending it, we let it sit in the blender for about 10 minutes. So this is a blender recipe. I think in Mexico, I did ask the whole thing is made in a blender, which also was incredibly appealing. Did we try frozen corn too, or is this has to be fresh corn? So in this case, it does need to be fresh corn. Frozen is tempting because it's convenient, but it does make it very gummy. We can use white or yellow corn. That's not a problem, but definitely not frozen. So you have the blender, the liquid ingredients, then what? So while the um, blender ingredients are sitting for about those 10 minutes, we whisk together the flour, cornstarch, baking powder, and salt separately in a bowl. And then in the blender, we add whole eggs, egg yolks, and oil. And then we blend the rest of it, pour it into the um, dry ingredients, and then all of that goes into a cake pan, into the oven. 45 minutes later, you have absolute delight. So this is, I've made this thing 10 times now, probably. (laughs) It takes 10 minutes to throw together. It takes you know, 30, 40 minutes to bake. The thing about this cake is it will not last to the next day. It's one of the greatest snack cake recipes ever because it's simple to do. It just has a remarkable flavor and texture you can't replicate with anything else. So you can tell I'm a big fan. (laughs) So that's why you should always travel for recipes. You find something you didn't expect. Raina, thank you so much. Mexican sweet corn cake. One of my top five cakes of all time. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for Mexican sweet corn cake at MilkStreetRadio.com. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Alex Inews tells us why he believes white bread is more important than sourdough in the journey of a home cook. That and more in just a moment. You know, I grew up with Vermont farmers who made do with tools they had on hand. A hammer, pliers, uh, and baling twine, of course, for most jobs. When I became a cook, however, I found that having just the right knife or maybe the perfect carbon steel skillet 
made all the difference. And the right tool also added pleasure to my cooking. I truly enjoyed my time prepping as well as cooking food. And that also goes for a car. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Moe Farm-Raised Salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre-seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's Moe, M-O-W-I, salmon.us to learn more. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Next up, Sarah Malt and I will answer a few more of your cooking questions. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Amy from Boston. Thank you so much for taking my call. I'm a huge fan of the show. I work in sustainable dining, and I recently tried some local sustainable fish from some fishermen in the area. One of the species was dogfish, also known as Cape Shark. And I tried it prepared in a bunch of different ways, but I couldn't get over that distinct shark 
fish-related flavor. I'm wondering if you guys have any tips for potentially neutralizing that flavor or preparing dogfish in a way to make it more appealing. And how would you describe that flavor? <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> or, is it, or is it something you can't um, really repeat on the air? No, I, I can repeat it. You know, there's a, like a, I guess it's subtle enough, an ammonia flavor associated uh-huh. with it. And I think a lot of shark species have that flavor. Do you know if it's very, very fresh when you buy it? It is fresh. They brought it straight from the boat and prepared it in front of us. Well, I'm no expert on fishing, but I think this is a problem of no urinary tract in the dogfish, right? I mean, it's sort of excreted through the skin. And so I think this is a fish that needs to be gutted or field dressed, as they would say in Vermont, blood chilled very quickly because you have that in the skin? Yeah. One thing we used to do at uh, the last restaurant I worked at was anything that had an aroma, and including some things that didn't but might eventually, we would soak in milk. And Oh, interesting. Kind of like garlic. I guess. I haven't actually done that with garlic. And this was prepared by chefs, you know, that knew what they were doing. I just couldn't see how I could make other Americans like it. Did they gut it and bleed it right after they caught it, do you know? Yeah, they supposedly prepared it in a way that was, you know, correct for serving dogfish. I don't think they were soaking it in milk, so that might be a good step for me to take and trying to market it. Give it a couple hours, and then, you know, I'd prepare it in a way that sort of hides its flavor, like maybe batter and fry it or something like that, you know? So it's, um, there's other things going on. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm hoping to see it become a more popular item, and this might be another step we have to take to get it there. Right. Well, thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? My name is Teresa. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from eastern Washington, Endicott. Okay. And how can we help you today? Well, I've recently started making some sorbets. Um, I'm dealing with some allergies that I have to avoid being dairy, soy, and uh, corn. Oh, um, bummer. Yeah, right. So I'd like to cut back on the amount of sugar that's used in the sorbet. It's a little bit sweet for our taste. So I'm wondering if I can do that without it affecting the consistency of the sorbet. One word, vodka. No, I'm serious. It, oh. Or gin, but I mean... <laughs> alcohol. Yeah, alcohol. Okay. You can cut the sugar, add alcohol, it'll be smooth. There's some religious reasons oh. not to use the vodka. Okay. No corn syrup, no alcohol. Right. Those are my right. secrets. Yeah, it's a bit of a problem just because you don't get the right texture if you don't have the right amount of sugar. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. You're right, though. Sorbets are achingly sweet. It's like old jam recipes that were just so high in sugar, but sugar is hygroscopic. It attracts water, which means that you're going to get a, a much finer crystal. Yeah, yeah. I thought it might have something to do with uh, the crystallization of the, of you know the dessert. You know what's absolutely delicious frozen, and you don't have to do anything to it, is a banana. Because <laughs> they taste <laughs> like banana ice cream without anything added to them. They're delicious. Yeah. You know, I agree with Chris about the alcohol thing because, you know, alcohol keeps things softer. They don't freeze hard with the alcohol in it. So what amounts would I use for myself? I don't mind. I I use the vodka in the pie dough recipes that I 
I make. So if I wanted to do that, how much vodka would I use and how much less sugar could I use? Well, I think the general ratio with sorbets is like four cups of fruit puree to one cup of sugar. So, Chris, how much vodka would you add to that? Take out quarter cup of sugar and add two tablespoons, I think, of vodka, just ballpark, yeah. something like that. Give that a shot. Okay. That will work. Yeah. You might have to play with the numbers, but that yeah. should work. Yeah. I made a pumpkin sorbet and I made a um, orange sorbet that called for orange juice. And it was just too sweet. Well, it was okay for when I tasted it immediately after using my KitchenAid, you know, before I stuck it in the freezer again, it tasted very sweet. And it did tone down once it was it right. was colder. When things are frozen, they taste less sweet. The other thing to do to have a complete cheat is make a granita, which is chunky, uh-huh. icy, frozen fruit. <laughs> but <laughs> just nowhere going, near as good. Well, okay, but at least you don't have to worry about it. I mean, yeah. that would work fine. But I, yeah, I would try two tablespoons and cut the sugar by a quarter cup and see what happens. That might work. Okay. Take care. Will do. Thanks. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. This is Mill Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MillStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? Hi, my name is Sharon. Hi, Sharon. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How can we help you? Okay, so I found a recipe, and it calls for carob molasses. This is a really exotic ingredient that I can't find anywhere locally, and online it's pretty expensive. So I was wondering, could I substitute regular molasses, or is there a way to doctor regular molasses to give it something like a carob flavor? Well, I mean, carob molasses has a chocolate flavor for obvious reasons. It's made from carob pods. Molasses is made by boiling down sugar as part of that process, which obviously has its own flavor, depending on whether it's light or dark. Right. The recipes you're talking about called for carob, you're saying? It calls for carob molasses. So I wondered if there was a, a workaround. I would just use regular molasses, and I probably just would understand. use a lighter molasses instead of a really Got a dark different one. Profile. It's just different. Or here's another idea. I'm assuming this is a Middle Eastern recipe. Is that correct? That is correct. Then use pomegranate molasses. That's very appropriate. It's fabulous. Oh, yeah. It is fabulous. It is fabulous. So do you think the uh, pomegranate molasses would be probably better than just using regular molasses, yes. right? Yes. It's much more complex. It's got a sourness to it. It's got a brightness it's to richness. it. It's richness. It's fruitier. Oh, yeah, it's sort of like you. balsamic vinegar in that it's rich and thick. and But it's. Okay. I think it's brighter. I think it's really fun. And if you want the world's best vinaigrette, add about a teaspoon to your vinaigrette recipe. What a nice idea. Yeah, it really <gasps> What a great idea. I use it all the time. Yeah. It's worth having. And the thing that you. you said this is a Middle Eastern, it's appropriate. It's a Middle Eastern ingredient. Yeah, so. I think that's... Good job. Right. Nicely done. Great. Okay. Well, thank Bye, you. Thank you. All right. That's really helpful. Take okay. care, sure. Bye. This is Mill Street Radio. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners. Hey, my name is Galen from Cambridge, Massachusetts, and my tip uh, is when you have leftover butter wrappers, when you take out a stick of butter to put it in your butter dish, put those butter wrappers in a plastic baggie in the freezer, and then when you need to bake something and grease a pan, take out the butter wrappers and use them and the excess grease to make the pan nice and smooth. 
you'd like to share your own cooking tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash radio tips. Next up, it's mad French food scientist, Alex Inews. Alex, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you? Good. How are things in, uh, in Paris? Uh, things are okay, I would say. I've been... Uh doing a bit too much Instagram. I've been eating Instagram too much lately. <laughs> you have a stomach ache? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel bad. I feel bloated with all these <laughs> pictures of, of sourdough bread. Everybody seems to be baking right. sourdough at a baker level, at a French baker level. Yeah, you, you always think if they're faking it. I, I, I think they are faking it. <laughs> That's what I think. I, I've, I've got a belief that I want to share with you. I believe that learning how to make any type of really basic yeast-based white bread will have a way greater impact on your life if you're, a, if you're a home cook than learning how to make sourdough. Yeah, I agree. I mean, also sourdough was used because that's all they had. Hmm. I mean, you know, that's, it wasn't like, oh, let's make sourdough. Sourdough was the only way to make bread before commercial yeast. And now everyone puts sourdough on a pedestal. I think sourdough is overwhelming for lots of foods anyway. I mean, it's great, but uh, just a basic white bread is much more versatile, right? Yeah, it's more, it's more versatile. And also, that, that's the way things started for me. So, so I'm, I'm going to tell you a bit of my story and how I got into bread making. So I'm sure it's, it's probably the same case scenario in the U.S., but in France, people eat loads of bread. But to be honest, they don't bake so much. Plenty of home cooks that I know... They're a bit afraid of baking bread. As a kid growing in France, that was the case at my place. We didn't bake bread. I, I got that you can't bake bread at home. It has to be kept for professionals. Okay, so that's a bit sad. But that is something I challenged when I grew up as a cook. So I, I, I did what I do when, when I tackle a new recipe. I just explored it first from a theoretical point of view. I learn about yeast, I learn about proofing times, about the ingredients, about different timings and the temperature. And I thought, well, it doesn't seem to be rocket science. So I tried very simple bread and I failed, obviously, a few times. Uh, but then at some point, it happened. I had my first real bread and it was white bread. It was just simple yeast-based sandwich bread. So... It's soft. It's not a slap in the face in terms of flavor. It's more like a conveyor belt that you would use for bread and butter, for peanut butter and jelly, for making sandwiches, for, for all these stuff. No, wait, 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 wait. Do people yes. in Paris eat peanut butter and jelly? No, I use this example for you guys. I, hey, peanut butter jelly is good stuff, man. Come on. I, I like it. I had it as a kid in the US. And the bread I, I just baked was perfect for that. Okay. Then, then I discovered that sourdough could be made at home. So I started, you know, documenting myself like a maniac, <laughs> filling up my notebooks with, you know, values and proportions and ingredients. And then I started experimenting. And to be honest, the thing I remember the most about that period, it was really complicated to get to something I would be pleased with. And, and at some point, I almost thought about giving up. I thought, it's just too much work. Okay. Finally, I got something I, I could call sourdough. It, it looked beautiful in the picture on Instagram and on, on my social media. And I was proud of it. It tasted 
great. Maybe not as good as the one I could find in a bakery, but it tasted <laughs> great. Now, I want to come back to how I felt when I baked my first loaf of bread, the white bread. You know, I have to say, I'm starting to feel like your therapist. I just want you to know. You are, Chris. <laughs> this is Alex I News Confesses. 100%. On Milk Street. I'm That's always looking like. forward to this session with you, Chris. <laughs> I don't even charge for it. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> That's the best part. Okay. So, so I remembered how I felt with my white bread. I, I felt a great amount of self-esteem. I'm not <laughs> even kidding with this. I had more confidence. And I thought, wow, this is me now. I can do this. <laughs> and, and that is so useful as a home cook. My soul didn't felt crushed and abused and wounded the way it has been while I was learning how to make sourdough. So in the end, I, I, I realized something. Sourdough will make you look good. White bread, instead of making you look good, it will make you feel good. <laughs> you will be a better home cook. Let's place it simply. So you've essentially saying, make some white sandwich bread and you'll be a happier, more satisfied person. I think so. And, and you will start believing in yourself. The White Bread Road to Happiness by Alex Inews. <laughs> Available soon. <laughs> everywhere. Available soon. Alex, uh, that was inspirational. You, you found something you believe in and um, now you can eat it with peanut butter and jelly. And jelly, yes. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> Me too. Alex, thank you so much. Have a good one. That was YouTube host Alex I News. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. You know, Alex I News loves to make white bread, which got me thinking about white foods. Many have a bad rep for containing little nutrition, and that includes white bread, white rice, white potatoes, white sugar, and white pasta. But you might ask, what about cauliflower, or chicken breast, navy beans, milk, and coconut? It's always what's inside that counts. That's it for today. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your podcasts. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, watch the latest season of our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Fast and Slow, Instant Pot Cooking at the Speed You Need. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, and on Instagram and Twitter at 177MilkStreet. We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Co-executive producer, Annie Sinsaba. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Sarah Clapp. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, David Goodman. Additional editing from Sydney Lewis and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Chubob Crew. Additional music by George Bernal Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.